Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. I know that you've been blessed this morning by the music and the message that it contains. Now open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, today's Palm Sunday as we call it, because this is the day that, or we commemorated on this day, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and the crowds were laying palm branches before him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And isn't it amazing how by the end of the week, Jesus was on a cross dying for our sins and then rose again. Uh, we celebrate Easter Sunday morning. How life changes quickly. Just a month ago, we didn't have any idea we'd be doing what we're doing today. Life changes in a hurry. I want to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, and we're going to talk about the cross today. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who were called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for our church family that is tuned in today. And there may be a number of people who have tuned in for the first time. And we pray that they will see what a glorious plan of salvation that you provided through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection. We ask that you speak to our hearts. I pray that you'll encourage folks. And for those of us who for many years followed the cross, followed Jesus, We pray that it'll be a time of encouragement and reminder of who we are. Thank you for your word, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I entitled this message, The Nonsense That Makes Sense. And you'll see in a moment what I'm talking about. Students in a psychology class at San Diego State College were asked to name their most valuable asset. What asset do you have is most valuable to you? Two of them wrote down intelligence, and both of them misspelled it. I've always been amazed at what people will believe. 
you've been in the grocery store line and you've seen those tabloids listed there. And these are actual headlines through the years that have been on some of those tabloids. Dinosaurs honked like Buicks. Cow mattresses help cows produce more milk. Mom, to be on diet of only chicken, lays huge egg. World War II bomber found on the moon. Woman gives birth to a two-year-old baby. Child walks and talks in three days. Adam and Eve, bones found in Asia. Eve was a space alien. Now, it's amazing. I don't know that anybody would believe that kind of stuff, but it's amazing to me what people will read and hear and are told today and automatically believe it. People are so gullible. There are a lot of different philosophies today, and one of the philosophies that we are surrounded by is called humanism. Let me read some of the tenets or what they believe. Humanists believe this. See if we're not surrounded by it. Denies the deity of God, the inspiration of the Bible, and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Denies the existence of the soul, life after death, salvation in hell, damnation, salvation in heaven, damnation in hell denies the biblical account of creation, believes that there are no absolutes, no right, no wrong, that moral values are self-determined and situational. Do your own thing as long as it does not harm anyone else. Believes in removal of distinctive roles of male and female. Believes in sexual freedom between consenting individuals, regardless of age, including premarital sex, homosexuality, and incest. Believes in the right to abortion, euthanasia, or mercy killing, and suicide. Believes in equal distribution of America's wealth to reduce poverty and bring about equality. Believes in control of the environment, control of energy, and its limitation believes in removal of American patriotism and the free enterprise system, disarmament, and the creation of a one-world socialistic government. Now, Colossians 2.8 tells us, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. In our complicated world, in man's so-called brilliant world, God still has a simple plan. And for these people who are so-called educated, it's nonsense to them. So let's look at it for a moment. First, I want you to notice the different perceptions of God's plan or God's way. In verse 17, Paul said, I didn't come to you with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. I didn't come to debate you. I came preaching the cross. Now, when Paul wrote to Corinthians, he had just been in Athens up on the on Mars Hill debating and, and interchanging with the, the so-called philosophers of that day. But Paul said, I didn't come with wisdom of words. I didn't come to try to flatter you with my intelligence or my, and Paul was an educated man. He was a very educated man. But he said, I didn't come with flattering words or, or words of wisdom, lest the cross would be nullified or be put out in a, a place where it wouldn't be the one that's focused on. Every religion and every ideology has its own symbol. 
Buddhists have the lotus flower. The Jews have the Star of David. Islam, the crescent. Communists were known for the hammer and sickle. And the Nazis, of course, were known for the swastika. But in our day, and in our day, the Democrats have the donkey, the Republicans have the elephant. But did you know in the beginning of, the, of Christianity, there was no recognized symbol? In the earliest days, Christians recognized each other by declaring, Jesus is Lord. And it took several generations for the cross to become the universal symbol of our faith. If you visit the catacombs of Rome, you, that, you will find crude drawings as they retreated underground. The Christians were under persecution. You would find crude drawings, but you don't find the cross. You find the fish. You find Bible stories. And, and, they, and, they, and the fish was a secret anagram, ichthus, meaning Jesus Christ, Son of God. But in the early days, they didn't draw the cross. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, notes that the cross did not become the common symbol of Christianity until the second century when the sign of the cross started being made by the, the priest over the foreheads of people. And when Constantine became emperor, the cross was well established as the sign of the Christian faith. But I want to tell you, in these days, when Paul wrote this, the cross was hated in the ancient world. It may have been the most brutal means of execution ever devised. Unlike modern methods of capital punishment that are designed to produce a quick death, crucifixion was meant to guarantee that a person on a cross would die a slow, agonizing death. Barbarians had invented the practice, but the Romans had elevated it to an art form. They knew how to do it, and it was considered such a heinous death that Roman citizens were never crucified. They was only left for the lowest of criminals that would be executed that way. It was an insult to the Romans. And it was that the wretched means of hideous education, uh, education, execution, excuse me, we've taken that and made it the symbol of our faith. It's hard to speak of it in modern-day equivalents because in this country, we are too civilized, and I don't mean that in a wrong way. I mean it sincerely to execute people in an inhumane way. Picture the electric chair or the lethal injection table or a firing squad or a gas chamber. Now, can you imagine songs being written like this? So I'll cherish the old firing squad. There's room in the gas chamber for you. At the firing squad, at the firing squad where I first saw the light, when I survey the wondrous lethal injection table, Jesus keep me near the electric chair. I'm not trying to be silly. I'm trying to help you understand how perfectly ridiculous it must have seemed to unbelieving people in Paul's day for him to focus on the cross. In verse 17, Paul uses the word preach. I preach the gospel. In fact, that word for preach is the word euangelizo. We get our word evangelism from that. It means to preach the good news. Later in verse 23, he uses another word for preach, which is caruso, which means to proclaim publicly that I preach Christ crucified. And then you'll notice in verse 18, it says, for the message of the cross. Now that word message is the word logos. We get our, the word 
It's usually translated the word, the word of the cross, the message of the cross. We get our word logic from it. And when Paul wrote of the logos of the cross, he wanted the readers to understand all of the implications behind it and what it meant to people, especially those who were being saved. So the perception, there was two perceptions. The first one, it's ridiculous to the rejectors. To those who are perishing. Now, the, the um, tense of the participle here is present tense indicating continuous action. Folks, did you know that people without Jesus are already perishing? They're already perishing and they will continue to perish. You see, it's not that God is going to condemn you. You're already condemned. Because of your sin, our sin separated us from God. He condemns us. Sin condemns us. We're in the process of perishing. Every person you know that does not know Jesus Christ and committed their life to Christ, they are perishing. The word perishing means to loose from something. Those who are lost are being continually loosed from a relationship with God. That's what it means. Foolishness, the word moria, moron. It's a strong term which means absurdity. In verse 25, it appears as an adjective, the foolishness of God. We get our English word moron from this Greek word, and it has the idea of something that's ridiculous, ignorant, stupid, contemptible. The American Heritage Dictionary says the word is moron is considered offensive. If somebody calls you a moron, now they, and unless they're just joking with you, but they call you a moron, you're, you're offended. It's foolish to the lost. The cross is. It's, it's moronic. It's ridiculous. It's absurd because it strikes at the heart of human pride. The cross announces in blood red letters that you cannot save yourself. No doctrine is harder to accept than the doctrine of human inability. That doctrine teaches us that there's nothing we can contribute to our salvation. Did you hear me? You cannot save yourself. You cannot be righteous enough, holy enough, Clean enough on yourself to be saved. Isaiah 64, 6 says that in the eyes of God, our righteousness, that is our works and all the things that we try to do, our righteousness looks like filthy rags. Imagine taking your best dress or your nicest suit and dragging it through the mud. Then you put it on the floor where people can walk on it. Then you use it to mop up your pet's accidents. Then you put on the suit and you drive to the most expensive restaurant you know of, exclusive. You have to wear nice clothes. And you say, I want to come in the restaurant. What do you think they're going to say to you at the door? They're going to turn you away. But you say, well, wait a minute. I have a reservation. It doesn't matter. You're not dressed appropriately to enter this fine restaurant. How do you think God feels when we stand before him in our dirty rags and claim to be righteous? Look how good I am, God. And all he sees is our sin. The cross proclaims 
that you have to come God's way or you don't come at all. It's amazing how people cling to filthy rags of their own works and then wonder why God won't take them. You mean to tell me that somebody died on the cross for my sin and a whole world's sin was covered? That's ridiculous, says those who are perishing. It's nonsense. But the other perception is that it is redemption to the redeemed, to those of us who are being saved, to those who are being saved. Now, here's another present participle, but it's a present passive participle, which means this, that the continuous action is from another source. When it's a passive verb, you, you are receiving the action. You're passive in it. You didn't do it yourself. It's coming from another source. That's God who's doing that. It's God who's acting to save us through his dunamis, his power, dynamite, as we get that word. He's saving us through his power, verse 18, by the power of God, the dunamis of God. I've loved the songs that were sung this morning. Been standing there singing with them. Got my focus back on the right thing. There's a song that was popular back many years ago that said, I will glory in the cross. I boast not of works or tell of good deeds, for naught have I done to merit his grace. All glory and praise shall rest upon him so willing to die in my place. I will glory in the cross, in the cross, lest his suffering all be in vain. I will weep no more for the cross that he bore. I will glory in the cross. My trophies and crowns, my robe stained with sin, t'was all that I had to lay at his feet. Unworthy to eat from the table of life till love made provision for me, I will glory in the cross. You see, we don't think it's ridiculous because we know that the cross is where Jesus died and God put our sin on him. We see the cross as redemption. And by the way, we see the cross as empty. I know Jesus died on it, but I'm not going to wear Jesus hanging on that cross because Jesus hung on that cross and was buried and rose again the third day. We see an empty cross and an empty tomb. The price has been paid. Now, you see how God's way is perceived. It's ridiculous. It's valueless to the rejecters. To those who are already perishing, they think it's ridiculous. But for those of us who've been saved, it represents redemption. Now let's see how God's, we've seen how God's way is perceived. Let's notice the predominance of God's wisdom in verse 19. For it is written, this message that Paul mentions, the word, the logic that he's saying reminded Paul of Isaiah 29, 14. That's why he says, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. It affirms that when, even when man is at his most brilliant moment, the smartest guy person you can imagine, it may be a woman, the smartest person you can imagine pales in the wisdom of God. We don't even come close. When Isaiah made this prophecy, 
Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. And he was planning to conquer Judah. Hezekiah was the king of Judah. And the Lord told Isaiah to tell Hezekiah not to worry or fear because Sennacherib's plan, the king of Assyria, is going to fail. But it would not fail because of the strength of Judah's army or because of the strategy of King Hezekiah and his advisors, Judah would be saved solely by God's power with no human help. And Isaiah 37, 36 says that God destroyed 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army with just one angel. You find the full account in 2 Kings chapter 19. One angel. Can you imagine the power of God and the wisdom of God? And we think that we're so smart. We've got all these PhDs and all of these degrees that supposedly make us intelligent. I've got one of those degrees. But I want to tell you something. Compared to the wisdom of God... It doesn't hold anything. Man is inclined to solve his own problems and fight his own battles and his own ingenuity, but that gets in God's way. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So we make up our own religions. We come up with our own ways, and God is saying, look, I've already put the plan in place. I've already paid the price. All you have to do is believe it in faith and receive it. But man says, no, 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 no. We're going to come up with our own way to get there. Jeremiah 8 9 says, the wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what kind of wisdom do they have? James describes it, it is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. And in verse 20, it's the question, where are all the smart people with all the answers? Wise speaks of the Greek philosophers of the day. In the Old Testament, it was a word used for soothsayers and mediums and wizards. Scribe could refer to the copiers of the important documents of Judaism in the Old Testament, especially in the Torah. In the Old Testament, it referred to those who went to battle and recorded what was happening, captured it on paper. In Paul's days, these two groups would have been on the cutting edge of theoretical thinking, and they were the best interpreters of the wisdom from the guys in the past. And, and Paul is saying, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to, to be smarter than God? And the third group, the disputer, refers to those who love debate. He was the one with the clever arguments and the impressive rhetoric. Somebody that's always got an answer or a question to make you doubt everything. Let me ask you this. Do we have any folks like that today? <laughs> where, where have all our great thinkers and our great philosophers and our sociologists and psychologists and economics and economists and scientists and statesmen, where have they brought us? Is our world in great shape? No, we have self-destruction and perplexity and confusion and corruption in verse 21, and it says that the wisdom of man, whatever that is, never leads to God. We did not find God on our own. God came looking for us. God came after us. We're too stupid to find him. 
he came after us. In fact, verse 21 says, it pleased God through the message preached to save those who believe. God's wisdom has been there all along. That little phrase, in the wisdom of God, means in the sphere of God's wisdom. Man has been surrounded by it, but we never find it on our own. And so God reached down, and through the plan of the cross, God revealed his wisdom. God said, I am a holy God. I cannot look on sin. You sinned. You've separated yourself. That sin problem has got to be taken care of. And so he took care of it. The wages of sin is death, thanatos, separation, separated from God. And we died. We're separated from God. But the cross, the sinless son of God, the sinless God died for us and rose again. And the word preached in that verse 21, it says, for since it in, in the wisdom of God, the, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It doesn't mean that preaching is foolish. Some of you may think it is. But he's saying that the so-called foolishness or nonsense by the lost people are saying of the cross, has led people to come to him and they have followed Jesus. You see, preached refers to the content of the message, the foolishness. And so many people today look at Christians like, you're a bunch of neurotic people that have to have a crutch to hold on to. Let me tell you something. It is our hope. Our hope is built on Jesus, his resurrection and his death on the cross for our sins. God is the one who did it. God is the one who created it. It's not for us to debate it. It's up to us to appreciate it and be thankful and to thank God for it. I want you to also notice the proclamation for God's world. I'm going to read verse 22 and following. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The message is looked at in different ways. When you talk about Jesus dying on the cross, notice how it's, how it's received. First of all, it is scandalous to the legalist. Now, why did I use the word scandalous? Because the word stumbling block is the word scandalon. The word sign means they want a miraculous sign. Why did the Jewish people stumble at the cross because most of them were looking for a political leader. And on Palm Sunday when Jesus came into Jerusalem, they thought their political leader had arrived. They, he was going to deliver them from the Roman Empire. They could not imagine a Messiah who was going to die on a cross. And even today, they can't conceive of a God who would allow his son to die that way. And they, first of all, they don't believe Jesus was God 
or is God. Another perception, it's senseless to the philosopher. Verse 22, for the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Wisdom, philosophical speculation, endless theorizing. And the word foolishness, that it says, it's again, is the word moria or moronic. Those who consider the message of the cross as foolishness, it's moronic to them. It's easier for me to believe that Almighty God created the world in an instant and that Jesus came and died for our sins than it is for me to believe somebody that says a quadrillion years ago something happened and we're just all a big cosmic accident. Who's thinking foolish? I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm just saying that in the, in the darkness of people's minds, when they're separated from Christ, they're in the dark. The light of the gospel does not shine unto them. Satan has blinded their minds. It's senseless to them. Romans 1.25 says they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They all think about reason. Reason that tells you babies aren't born to a virgin. Reason tells you that God doesn't become flesh. Reason tells you that Almighty God would have not allowed puny men to nail him to a cross. Reason tells you that when a man dies, he cannot be resurrected back to life. None of that makes any sense. So philosophers look at it as foolishness. Foolishness. Erwin Lutzer points out that the cross offends modern men and women, modern men and women in three ways. First, it offends our pride. The cross was and is a sign of weakness in the eyes of many people because it was a method of executing criminals. Only the worst, the dregs of society, would die that way. And the thought is revolting. We're supposed to follow a man who died on a cross? Yet that's exactly what God asked us to do which in the mind of some people is, is God asking us to follow a loser. Affects our pride. It also offends our wisdom. You see, it's the end to salvation by education. We, we think all education is the answer to everything here. There's nothing wrong with education. I are educated. There's nothing wrong with that. But education doesn't save you. It offends certain people who prefer to believe that the problem today is not sin, it's ignorance. Education is good and necessary, but it never opens the door to heaven. In fact, education ought to bring you to the place where you see clearly the plan of salvation. Third, the cross offends our values. It extends equal invitation to everybody, to the powerful, to the weak, to the flight attendant, to the homeless. It transforms the drug addict and transforms the affluent. Everyone is invited into God's family on the same plane, on the same basis. There are no favorites, no special deals made, and that just doesn't seem right. After all, so those of us who've been going to church for a long time, we ought to be a little more saved than those who never come. But the fact is, all of us are lost and separated from God. 
and we come to God through Jesus Christ the same way. It offends our pride. It offends our wisdom. It offends our values. And finally, did you notice the, the final way that's perceived? It's salvation to believers. Verse 24, to those who are called. Folks, when you come to know Jesus, you sense the Holy Spirit inviting you. I can't explain it. I know that when I was a young boy, about 12, 11 or 12 years old, I just knew that night I needed to give my life to Christ. God was calling me. I didn't hear an audible voice, but I just knew it. I, it's, it's put in different terms. Knocking, the Lord's knocking on your heart's door. There's an urgency that you feel. And some of you may be feeling that right now. Some of you know that you're hearing the truth, not from me, you're hearing it from the word of God. I'm just the messenger. But the word of God is powerful. The power of God, the Holy Spirit moves. So it says some Greeks and some Jews responded we're called by the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's all found in Christ. And some of you need to respond to that call. John Piper declared the cross, he said this of the cross, the wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. God's love came and God died on the cross for us and satisfies on payment. How he did that, I do not completely understand, but I do know that it took care of our sin and forgave us of our sin. The wisdom was on display on the cross when God's son was crucified because there, listen, God's wrath was satisfied. God's justice was uncompromised. God's love was magnified. God's grace was glorified. God's mercy was exercised. God's wisdom was exemplified. And God's glory was maximized. I will glory in the cross. Not because it was a pretty thing. But because everything that needed to be done for my salvation was taken care of on the cross. And three days later, Jesus rose again, defeating death, taking the sting out of it. We're going to celebrate that next Sunday. We have three crosses on our church property out front. They're not nearly as big as I wanted them to be. <laughs> I wanted them to be all over where you could see them all over town. There was a sermon some years ago by Myron Taylor entitled A Hill with Three Crosses. And he said, one cross portrayed, portrays a thief dying in sin. Another cross signifies a thief dying to sin. And the third cross, the center one, speaks of the Redeemer dying for sin. It divides all humanity into one of two categories. Those who reject Christ and die in sin and those who receive Christ and die to sin. In this world, there are many roads that you can travel, but only one of them leads to heaven.
And it makes sense. It makes sense to know where a road is leading before traveling on it. And the road to heaven starts at the cross where Jesus died. If you are watching, listening to this, and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I don't care if you were sprinkled, baptized as a baby, dedicated as a child, you went through catechism, you went through confirmation, I don't care what you went through. There comes a time when you choose, you follow Jesus Christ. And some of you know right now the Lord is calling you. You, you just sense it. You can't explain it, you just know it. You know I'm telling you the truth. You know that God is calling you to follow him. So what do you do? You, you ask God to forgive you. Your sin has separated you. You ask God to forgive you. And you realize that you cannot save yourself. You believe, not only here, but you trust with your life that Jesus paid it all. He died on the cross, paid the price of your sin. He rose again the third day, defeating death. And you are going to heaven through Jesus. And when you ask God to forgive you and you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you really mean it, God washes you clean, covers you with the perfect righteousness of Christ and you are saved. Some of you need to do that right now. So would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those who have never received Christ, but right now, since you calling them, we pray that they would follow you even now, that you would make it clear to them that they need to give their life to Jesus. And for those of you who are watching and you need to commit your life to Christ, it's not just praying a prayer. It's a commitment. And the commitment goes something like this in your own words, from your heart to God. God, I know I'm a sinner and I'm separated from you. And I ask you right now to forgive me. Please, God, I turn from my sin. I come to you. With all I know how, I ask you to forgive me. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I believe he rose again. I believe that he is the Savior of the world. And Lord Jesus, right now, with all I know how, I commit my life to you and I want you to come in and live in me. I want you to be the Lord of my life and to save me right now. I pray, Lord, for those who may have committed their life to Christ that you give them the courage to let it be known, to stand up for Christ. I pray for those that need comfort and hope today. I pray for those that may be looking for a church and when the day comes, we get to meet again. I pray they'll join us right here. It's one of the sweetest fellowships on earth. And I pray, Father, that you would help those who may be drifting away or drifting off the path and draw them back to you even now. And thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information to make a commitment or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. 
You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.